And now a word from this Bible, from the Old Testament, preparing our hearts and minds to hear Jesus' first beatitude. Good morning, Ivanrest Church. Welcome. Let us read from the Bible, Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For the day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was zapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up mine iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with the songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. And now, as we continue our look at how to live right side up, in an upside-down world, by listening to Jesus' Beatitudes, we consider the first of those. We introduced the topic last week. We begin looking at these Beatitudes individually this week. The text is Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. They called it Makaria. It means the happy island. That's what the Greeks called Cyprus. And they called it Makaria because it was so lush and so rich and so fertile and the climate was so nice that they were convinced that if you were there, you'd never have to leave the boundaries of Cyprus and you could live a perfectly happy life for as long as you were alive. I mean, the trees were so wonderful, the flowers were so beautiful, the fruit was so juicy and tasty. There were so many mineral resources and natural resources that you could be perfectly happy on the island of happiness for as long as you were alive. Makaria, the happy place. 
And who wouldn't want to live there? Who wouldn't want to live somewhere that was proverbial for making folks happy? Makaria is just another way of saying happy in Greek. It was the Greek word for happy. And it was the Greek word for happy before it was the Greek name for Cyprus. It is also the very first word in every one of Jesus' beatitudes. Makaria. Blessed. Happy. But in this world, and we've been listening to prayers about this world, and a reading from Psalm 32 that delineates some of the brokenness of this world. <clears throat> in this world, it seems unattainable, unreachable, incredible. The very form, however, in which the Beatitudes have come to us is designed to underscore the certainty of that happiness. These are not just statements, these are exclamations. More properly put, it would not be blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, but something like, oh, the blessedness of, oh, the happiness of, which means that the Beatitudes are not just pious statements of something that might yet be, but joyful celebrations of something that could be now. Welcome to the Isle of Happiness. Well, that sounds promising. That seems hopeful. That looks good. It's like a ticket to the Island of Joy. Can't you just see the crowds on the hills that day when Jesus is speaking his sermon on the mount? Their minds drooling over what it seems he's starting to offer them, whispering perhaps in stage whispers to each other and to folks nearby. Did you hear what he said? Did you hear what he offered? Did you hear what he's promising? A ticket to paradise. Blessed, oh, the blessedness of. And then the bomb drops. The poor in spirit. Sophie Tucker, whose name may not mean much to a lot of you, it doesn't mean that much to me, but she was an actress a long time ago. She was quoted as saying once, look, I've been rich and I've been poor. Trust me, rich is better. And isn't that what everybody thinks? It's better to be rich. So we had better listen very carefully to this man on the mount as he delivers his sermon to us. It's actually even more surprising and intense than you might have assumed because Jesus' choice of the word poor in poor in spirit, does not mean just not quite wealthy. It does not imply not quite yet in the upper middle class. The word he chose to use there is a word that means 
penniless, indigent, crouchingly poverty-stricken. It's like going to Kandahar or one of the other poverty pockets in the world where people survive on handouts and not many people survive because there aren't many handouts. It's like the scene that is burned into my memory from downtown Bombay when I rode a bus through that city and saw people who were fortunate enough to have found a refrigerator box to live in on the street and scavenge for whatever they could get a hold of to survive. And while I didn't see it, I was told the next morning those who didn't survive would be picked up and stacked like cordwood on an ox cart. It's like Lazarus the poor beggar who lay at the gate of Dives, the rich man. Jesus said very solemnly, you will not see the shores of the island of happiness until you acknowledge being that poor. And why would Jesus use a word like poor? Well, the etymology of this word is significant I won't give you a grammar lesson, but the word originally meant just poor. But then, because poor people don't have much influence, it came also to mean powerless. And then, because poor, powerless people often are walked on and kicked aside, it also meant oppressed. And finally, it meant people who have so little recourse, so little resource, they have no hope at all but to throw themselves on the mercies of God. That's not being poor, spirited, unhappy, dismal, downhearted, depressed. It's not necessarily being penniless or materially destitute. It is not being worthless or without value. No, to be poor in spirit is to know your utter dependence on God and his utter reliability to meet your needs. John Calvin put it this way. He only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God, is poor in spirit. And C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel we are good, above all that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Listen to some of the other translations. Today's English version said, blessed are those who know they're spiritually poor. The New English Bible says, how blessed are those who know their need for God. 
And the Amplified Bible, as you might have guessed, amplifies it considerably. Blessed, happy, to be envied, and spiritually prosperous, with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of their outward conditions, are the poor in spirit, the humble, who rate themselves insignificant. The happiness. Oh, the blessedness begins with recognizing we're spiritually poor, spiritually destitute, spiritually poverty-stricken, because only then will we turn to God who is rich in mercy and will open the storehouses of heaven to pour down on us his enabling power in such a way that we can get a glimpse of, a taste of, a foothold on the island of happiness. And do you know what? What will be the proof of our life-saving poverty? What will be the result of our beggarly approach to amazing grace? What will happen to us if we are really spiritually poor? We will lose all vestiges of pride. Or at least find it leaking out of us everywhere at an alarming rate. We will not be tempted to be self-satisfied. At least we will not yield as often as we used to to that temptation. We will not be judgmental about others, always comparing others to ourselves and coming out a little higher. We will begin to try to look at others the way Christ has looked at us. We will not be lukewarm about our faith we will at least try to be more and more and more enthusiastic about it. And now I want to say something very personal and very relevant and very contemporary for right now. It's been going on in my head and in my heart for a long time. I am speaking of myself as well as all of you and I am not speaking of any one person in particular, but I am constantly more and more dismayed at how easy it is for us to piously and righteously listen to the word of God and claim, as we have already in this service, Jesus Christ is Lord, And then go home and have lunch and forget all about this pride thing that being poor in spirit is supposed to be removing. And think, we're doing pretty well. At least better than some. And on a good day, probably better than most. And in this day, turn on the news and watch 
the live clips of what's going on in our center cities today and treat it like a B-grade TV movie rerun and go get a snack in the middle and turn it off when it's over and ignore it. And see people marching on the streets of the cities of America and as I have heard repeatedly of late, while I know that there is looting and there is vandalism and there is disobedience and violence, label the entire enterprise a riot and feel a little self-righteousness for thinking so. Or hear chants of Black Lives Matter and feeling righteous in saying, yes, they do, but I put a comma at the end and say, and so do I matter, and put myself back into consideration. Or I listen to medical experts saying over and over and over again, please, wherever you go, whatever you do, wear a mask today. And I know any number of people who say, I don't like to. And what they're really telling the world around them is, I don't care as much about you as I do about me. And then perhaps sit down at our leisure sometime at the computer and check into one of our social media accounts and type in some utterly unspeakable, cruel, and crude sentiments about someone and push send or whatever you push and feel no twinge of guilt even though we wouldn't dare say what we just wrote out loud. Do we really believe what we just read? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are getting rid of their pride and their self-satisfaction and their judgmentalism and their lukewarm faith. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, I'll admit, it does sound a little like, even if you're miserable now, cheer up. You'll be happy someday in heaven. But that's not what Jesus is saying. It is not happiness someday. It is that kind of happiness today. It is contrary to all human expectation and thinking. The kingdom of heaven belongs to people who know they aren't rich, but desperately poor. The kingdom of heaven belongs not to those who are confident in their own ability, but who are convinced they have no ability outside of Christ. Eugene Peterson caught something of this when he translated this beatitude this way. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope with less of you 
there is more of God and his rule. And, and where is the kingdom of heaven? Oh, some of it is yet to come, but it is right now wherever a saint of God says what Asaph said to God in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. The kingdom of heaven is wherever a saint can say with the apostle John, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. The kingdom of heaven is wherever sin is being conquered and fear is being overcome and doubt is being resolved and faith is being strengthened and prayer is being deepened and love is being shared and joy is being experienced. William Barclay, the commentator, paraphrased this beatitude this way. Oh, the bliss of the person who has realized his own utter helplessness and who has put his whole trust in God. For thus alone can we render to God that perfect obedience which will make us a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Somebody once said, the first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Fortunately, R. Kent Hughes wrote, this truth can penetrate the most privileged of hearts, as it did to one of England's most distinguished judges. That judge belonged to a large city church which had three mission satellite churches. And once every year on the first Sunday of the year, all three of those mission satellite churches would join with the mother church in the mother church sanctuary and celebrate communion together. There were some amazing stories of conversion that came from those mission satellites. Thieves and murderers and others who were brought to the Lord. At one of those special communion services, and they had a communion rail to which people came and at which people knelt, a thief, a former thief, was kneeling beside a judge from the high court of England, and the pastor noticed it. After his release from prison, that thief had been converted to Christ and was now engaged in full-time Christian work. And after the service, the judge said to the pastor, did you happen to see who was kneeling next to me at the communion rail today? And the pastor said, yes, I did. I didn't know if you did, but I did. And the judge said, what a miracle of grace. And the pastor said, yeah, it was a miracle of grace. And, and then the judge said to the pastor, but about whom were you talking? And the pastor said, I was talking about that converted thief. And the judge said, I was talking about myself. 
And the pastor didn't quite understand what he meant by that, so the pastor or the judge went on. Yes, it was natural for that burglar to respond to God's grace when he came out of jail. His life was nothing but a desperate history of crime, and when he saw the Savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. He understood how much he needed that help. But I, I was taught from my earliest infancy to be a gentleman, that my word was my bond, that I was to say my prayers, go to church, receive communion. I went up to Oxford, took my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually ascended to judge. My friend, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I'm a greater miracle of grace than he. And Kent Hughes told that story and then said, is this your heart's cry? Or are you a church attender without Christ? Are you a Christless Christian? If so, hear God's word and take it to heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The only way to eternal wealth is to admit and confess spiritual poverty. The only way to victory is to humbly surrender. That's a one-way ticket to the aisle of eternal happiness. And so I pray for us all. Happy surrender. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's beautiful to listen to all the Beatitudes and this one too and piously say amen to it until we dig just a little deeper and see what it means and what it requires. Doesn't put it out of reach, but means we haven't quite grasped it all yet. Show us how poor we are how incapable and often how unwilling to acknowledge who we are and break through that wall of resistance with a miracle of grace and help us to be one of the co-owners of the kingdom of heaven by grace and grace alone. Amen. Now, go in peace, and may the God of peace himself give you peace at all times and in all places. The Lord be with you all. Amen.